Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall at The Spectator. Um, today I'm joined by a friend, uh, Constantine Kissin. He's a comedian, uh, co-host of the Trigonometry Show podcast with Francis Foster and uh, author of the upcoming book, uh, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. And Constantine, you are, well, firstly, welcome. Thank you for taking the time to, to speak with me. No, it's great to speak with Winston. Uh, always happy to speak. You were born in Russia, moved here a long time ago, I think, 1995, and you have family in Ukraine. Do you have family in Russia? I don't know, but I imagine this is a very emotional time for you, and this, I can only uh, imagine how, how difficult it's been for you to speak out. And yet you have. You've been on Unheard, Question Time, and various uh, shows, uh, as well as your own uh, speaking throughout. Has your opinion changed over the course of these 19 days? What, what's your journey been? Do you see things differently now to the beginning or uh, what, what's changed do you think yeah well first of all thanks for having me Winston and I appreciate your kind words I do have family in Russia you know I've got all sides of all sort of bits to my family I've got family in Russia my mum's Ukrainian my dad's side is from a different part of the former Soviet Union I have lots of relatives in Ukraine so my wife's Ukrainian her family are pro-Russian speakers in Ukraine like it's it's, it's a very complicated thing uh, so I've been trying to give people an honest view of what's been going on for the last few weeks. And has my view changed? Well, I, I don't know. My view is, I, I don't like the word changed in this case because it kind of presupposes that things have remained the same and my view has changed. Whereas I don't think that's really what's been going on. What I think has been going on is the situation has developed over time and therefore the, the views I have of it have changed over time as well. I'm afraid I my views now are very uncomfortable for me to hold, but it is nonetheless what I think is going on. You know, the Western media has focused a lot on sort of the human interest story, you know, and showing pictures of refugees fleeing and, and destruction and so on, which I can totally understand. And I think it's good for people here uh, in the UK and elsewhere in the West to get a, a picture of what's going on in terms of people's lives and how awful things are. But in terms of the bigger situation, I don't think we're really getting any accurate coverage because sadly, you know, for all the talk about how brave Ukrainians are, which they are, and how wonderfully they're defending their country, which they are, and which I would be doing if I were in their position. Uh, I think they're exactly right to be defending their home when it's under attack. I'm afraid the truth militarily seems to be that Russia is struggling, but making progress anyway. The capital, Kiev, is about to be encircled. Most of the Ukrainian army, which has been uh, held in the east of the country, is once the encirclement of Kiev is complete and they can complete the line from the southern uh, movement from Crimea and the northern movement from the Chernigov, Belarus area, they will have the entirety, not the entirety, but the bulk of the Ukrainian army encircled. They will have Kiev encircled. And from there, I'm afraid they're just going to proceed to batter Ukrainian cities into the ground until Ukraine surrenders. So I'm very concerned about what's happening. I'm also concerned that I don't know that... I, I really hope I'm wrong, but I don't see a way to win for Ukraine here because I think their tactic was to prolong the conflict long enough for the West to offer more help and more support. I think it's quite clear now the West isn't going to do that beyond the level of what it already has done. So I'm, I'm concerned that more lives are going to be lost, more hate is going to be built up, more atrocities will be committed on both sides and leave a, a resentful atmosphere that will last for generations. Now, I think it's unavoidable anyway, but I just worry that the longer the conflict goes on, the more casualties 
whether immediate or long term they're going to be without necessarily changing the outcome of this war. And what do you think that outcome will be? Do you have a, a, a kind of concept? You've spoken very eloquently explaining Putin's position and in fact in a way that the mainstream media and the alternative media seems to be failing to do. A, a lot of people call him mad rather than trying to understand what he wants and given that you're sort of projecting that or, or forecasting that, that he is going to win and uh, probably very uh, high casualty list on both sides uh, what what do you think the outcome that he will want when it comes to a negotiation when it comes to a partition what is what do you think that looks like well i don't know that there will be a partition i think that's very much up for discussion really uh, i think what it looks like is the enforcement of russia's initial demands russia's initial demands were recognition of crimea as part of russia crimea being the peninsula that russia annexed in 2014 it means recognition of independence for the two so-called breakaway republics in the east, with no doubt the, the long-term aim that they join Russia in the long term. Uh, and then you come to the other two points on their list, which is what all this fuss is really about, which is what they call a neutral Ukraine, uh, by which they mean going back to a period of time when Moscow decided who gets to be president in Ukraine and a puppet government and a pro-Russian redirection of culture, of media, of commentary, of society, the forcing out from the public space of anyone who has a more Ukrainian uh, nationalist agenda or a nationalist view or a pro-Ukrainian view or is in favor of Ukrainian language being predominant in Ukraine and so on. And uh, the fourth point being what they call denazification, which is essentially part of the same process, which is having pretended that Ukraine is run by a bunch of Nazis in order to be able to invade, they then have to get rid of certain people who, who they've claimed are Nazis, which is that there is a small minority of people in Ukraine who are genuinely on the far right, uh, a very small minority. But for the most part, that will be about ridding the structures of power of people who are opposed to Russian dominance in Ukraine. Hmm. You've actually gone further than that and said that this would actually just be the beginning and that, and that he'll look to, let's say, the other Baltic states which have uh, Russian, uh, large minorities, uh, Russian-speaking and culturally Russian people there, and, and that that will be the next frontier. And uh, do, you, do you still stand well, by that? Well, I, I never quite said this. What, what I said was that is a possibility and that's why those countries were desperate to be in NATO. I wasn't suggesting... Vladimir Putin was about to invade the Baltic states, although, of course, he has very good reason to. People who want to look at a political map of Eastern Europe should find the Kaliningrad region on a map, and they'll see that Russia has a piece of its territory that is disconnected from the rest of Russia, and the, the, the two countries that stand in its way are Latvia and, and Lithuania. So there is a geopolitical reason for him to want to do that. But I would also think that the reaction from the West has shocked Vladimir Putin, as it shocked me, frankly. I was not expecting as strong and as coordinated and as united a response from Western countries as we've seen. So I don't think that he would be, uh, certainly at this point, uh, even thinking about that. I think in the immediate, his, his focus will be on trying to win the war in Ukraine uh, or get a win that he can sell as a win back home. And, well, trying to save Russia's economy from the impact of the sanctions, which will really, really hurt. Uh, I don't think he'd be thinking about invading further at this point. Uh, but of course, the, the geopolitical broader point I was making is if the West withdraws and refuses to defend its boundaries, then of course Russia has ambitions to expand further, and it would do.
One thing I think you have insight into, uh, you, you've, you've said that you have Ukrainian family who are pro-Russian. Now, mm. uh, last week I spoke to Sviatoslav Vakachuk, who's uh, the lead singer of Akian Elci, uh, Ukrainian band, and he said that the 24th of February was a turning point for Ukrainians. Putin had, uh, and I paraphrase now, he'd united the country because now they have a common enemy, a, con a common purpose. Uh, against the the Russians. Now, I, I don't know if you agree with his statement there. I'd be curious to know that. But I'd also like to know, what is it, what's the worldview of those pro-Russian Ukrainians and, and also or the pro-war Russians, I suppose? Mm. Uh, I don't know if you have insight there. Okay. Well, so there's three questions really there. So the first question uh, is, is he right to say that the invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin's forces has solidified pro-Ukrainian sentiment, even in, among Russian speakers and ethnic Russians in Ukraine. That's definitely the case. That's definitely the case. That doesn't mean that every single Russian speaker or pro-Russian Ukrainian has changed their mind. There are still some people holding out. So, and then the other two questions you've asked is, what is the view of pro-Russian Ukrainians? Or what is their worldview? And then the third question is, what is the view of the pro invasion Russians. Uh, and we can take those one at a time. So in terms of the pro-Russian Ukrainians, largely it is uh, a sense. So as you will know, given how much you've studied Soviet history, people in the Soviet Union were essentially treated like a commodity. So you would be shipped to wherever you were needed or wherever you were necessary. So if you were an aviation engineer and the Soviet Union decided to build an aviation plant in the Ukrainian Socialist Republic, then you would be sent there. And it wasn't like being sent to another country. It was like being moved from Stoke to Watford or whatever. Do you know what I mean? That's how it would have been perceived by those people. And so imagine that you've just moved from Stoke to Watford and suddenly Watford declares independence from the country and you are now stuck in a country which you weren't planning to live in and this country now moves in a different direction. It starts encouraging people to speak a language that is not your language. Uh, it starts to, you know, it, it becomes an independent country in, in every way. And there are things that are happening there that you don't like. And by the way, you simply don't like the collapse of the country you were living in because you were very happy in that country. You were wealthy, you were comfortable, you had a serious job. And suddenly now that world's collapsed and you have to make a living for yourself. There's a new market economy in which the job that you used to do is no longer necessary. There's an awful lot of corruption of a different type to the one that you were used to in the Soviet Union and so on and so on and so on. So it's really a sort of stop the world, I don't want to get off kind of position for many people. And by the way, I'm not saying that in any sort of derogatory way. If you lived 60 years in a society that changes overnight, the, the discomfort of that and the cognitive dissonance that comes with that is very, very unpleasant. So there are some people who feel that they were just, you know, victims of a, of a historical misfortune. And here's an opportunity to correct that. They never wanted to be apart from the greater country of, of Russia. They would never felt Ukrainian. They were sometimes there were people who were just Russian people who ended up living in this part that the, the Soviet authorities designated as Ukraine. They never saw themselves as part of Ukraine. They saw themselves as citizens of the Soviet Union. But presumably then the, the, it's got to be deeper than that because they could just move back to Russia. I mean, I know. Moving oh, no, they don't easy. want to move back to Russia. They want Russia to move into this part because they, they consider, consider historically, culturally, exactly. religiously part of the Russian world. That's the, the phrase of Vladimir Putin's use. So there are people that, who I'm not saying their position is right or logically consistent. You just asked me to describe it. And, and so I am. 
that is their worldview that you know that the the and also you add to that the sort of humiliation of the collapse of the Soviet Union we were these great power that everyone had to you know they might not have liked us but at least they had to reckon with us and suddenly we live in this small powerless country called Ukraine that that you know is unstable and economically not as prosperous as we'd hoped and and it's not able to punch its way uh, on the international stage to any sort of great outcome uh, so all of those things combined together with history, with religion, etc., and we can get into the religious side of it. There are there are a lot of reasons for a small minority of people in Ukraine to feel, you know, betrayed by by history, betrayed by the fate by fate, and if if that can be remedied, you know, uh, they'd be quite happy with it. Now, how many of those people are watching Ukrainian cities now being destroyed by Russian forces and still hold that opinion? I don't know, but there will be some who are still in favor of it. Are they doing? Are they signing up to uh, the, the Russian military? I guess they can't do that. But I don't imagine. So I think in the breakaway regions, there are uh, sort of pro-Russian people who are part of the forces that are fighting against Ukrainian uh, and Ukrainians and the Ukrainian army uh, from that particular area. In, in Russia, and, and this is, uh, you, you'll think I'm insane for citing uh, an RT uh, poll, and uh, the, it said that Putin's popularity had gone up 10% throughout the course of the war. And given that it's RT, one could be surprised that they didn't, it, didn't, it wasn't said to go up 1,000%. So uh, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, we don't, I don't trust the, 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 that news source. But it doesn't seem unrealistic to me that he would have gone up in popularity. He was already immensely popular um, by some polls there, particularly amongst uh, elder generations. I've seen one thing that, uh, uh, that indicates to me that the youth don't feel the same way. I just saw that uh, there's been one and a half million purchases of VPNs to use the internet because the government are uh, banning social media, all the usual social media sites, so that they can uh, maintain, you know, the, the propaganda lines and, and consistent ideology among its population. But that, in, that implies that there's pushback uh, on, uh, from, from certainly the youth or a part of the, of the population. Do you think it's believable that, that uh, Putin's gone up in popularity um, well, I share your scepticism about the source of this particular poll, uh, but I have no hesitation in believing the, its results in this particular instance. There's no question that Putin's popularity has gone up. Uh, and this is one thing that people in the West don't seem to understand. All you need to do is spend a few hours watching Russian national television to understand the mood of the country. The mood of the country is a product of decades now of Look, when I use this term, I want people to be very clear that I'm in no way suggesting that Vladimir Putin is Adolf Hitler or that he is in any way, you know, an anti-Semite or has a racial animus in what he is doing or anything of the kind. There is no evidence for that. And I'm not suggesting that. But when I say that the propaganda levels are at Goebbels stage, what I mean is how powerful it is, how consistent it is, how long it's been going on, what the messaging is like. Uh, look, the people in Russia are cut off, as you say, from all sorts of independent information. And if you watch mainstream Russian television, there isn't like a question time debate where you get a person from this party and from that party having a, a discussion and a disagreement. It is three hours at primetime television in which there is one message that is reinforced with 
very graphic footage and Russian people are being told that there's a genocide being committed in eastern Ukraine, that Ukraine is full of Nazis that who are running the country. There's several instances now where prisoners of war, Russian prisoners of war, are on camera saying, I, I'm shocked by what's by being here and what's happened because I literally thought there would be swastikas everywhere. That's the level of indoctrination. So uh, the country, so I'm giving it to you from the Russian perspective. Now, I, again, I make it clear. So they buy, this. this is what Putin put out in his speech. Was it two days before he invaded or the week yeah. before? The, in essence, the, the people believe that narrative and that long history of, of Russian yeah. civilization. Yeah. I, yeah, sorry. And you've got to remember as well, you know, in one of the things that has happened in Russia since it, the collapse of the Soviet Union in, in 1991 is that there's been a loss of power and a loss of purpose in many people's eyes. And where do you go back to in order to rekindle your sense of your national glory and unity and achieving something great together? Uh, it's World War II. The Russian national myth, uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's a myth as in it's not entirely true. I'm saying, you know, every country has a national myth of some kind, something you tell yourself to be proud of your country. And the Russian national myth is we defeated fascism. And that view, that point of view, uh, has been present for the last 20 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union to the point where cars in Moscow streets would be driving around with bumper stickers which say, which means we can do it again. And that is a specific reference to defeating Nazism and defeating Hitler. So if you tell Russian people on national TV, we are fighting the Nazis again, and you tell them that their fellow Russians are being genocided in eastern Ukraine by Nazis, and, 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 it's not very difficult to get a lot of people to a position where they support what's happening. And of course, if they are not getting alternative information, if they're not getting other points of view, and many of them are not interested in getting other points of view because what they're being told fits very nicely with the beliefs that they already have. And then you get to a position where you are now, where the vast majority of people, for the moment, support this war and will continue to support it. Yeah, that, that Nazi analogy is so potent now. I remember, was it 2018, I think Boris Johnson said, when he, he would have been Foreign Secretary, I think, at the time, he said something about Russians being like the Nazis. I can't remember exactly what he said, but it really upset the Russians because... Was it 10 or 15 million Russians who... 20 million. 20 million Russians died fighting the Nazis. So mm -hmm. now, when you see, is it the Azov or the Azov uh, battalion, uh, who are a small group by comparison with the population of the country, that perfectly ties into the Russian narrative and, and suits this, uh, supports this um, idea of denazification. Well, there's a Ukrainian element to this which is sadly unfortunate but true, which is during World War II when Stalin expanded the borders of the Soviet Union by joining forces with Hitler and annexing half of Poland and Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania and part of uh, Bukovina as well, is he expanded the borders of what is now Ukraine, what was the Soviet Ukraine, onto a piece of Poland which had a... Volin, uh, it's called in Russian, which had a very small anti-Polish, anti-Jewish, Ukrainian nationalist, essentially fascist cell. The, this was a tiny number of people who wanted independence from Poland, they wanted to be free of the Soviets, and they happened to be fascists in the way that they thought, in what they wanted to achieve. And when Nazi Germany attacked the Soviet Union, these people tried to work with Nazi Germany 
in order to to hopefully get independence for Ukraine. That's that's how they saw it. They were completely unrepresentative of anybody. Their entire uh, activities during the war consisted of fighting against Soviet partisans and massacring the local Polish and Jewish populations. And they eventually, most of them ended up either in servile positions vis-a-vis the Nazis or in Nazi concentration camps because what they wanted was to be independent and the Nazis just wanted to use them for their own purposes. So this is a a bit of a historical aside, but the reason I'm, I'm including it is that the Ukrainian authorities in seeking to cultivate a Ukrainian national identity did, I think, make several mistakes. One of them was to make the leader of this organization, Stepan Bandera, a sort of national hero, because Ukraine, a relatively new and very unstable country historically, didn't have any national heroes to aspire to. It didn't have the Winston Churchills and the whatevers. And I think maybe there would have been an element of sort of rubbing the Russia's nose in this thing as well. So there were some mistakes that were made, but to suggest that Ukraine is full of Nazis or whatever is, of course, absurd. But, but we should also be honest and say that there is a sliver of Ukrainian society that is very anti-Semitic and in a very particular part of Ukraine, historically isn't even part of what we now call Ukraine, there was that problem. There was that problem. And there are a few people who are followers of that ideology and some of them are fighting to defend Ukraine, just like there are people like that in Russia. And if Russia came under attack, uh, as someone who was a, a Jewish dark-skinned kid growing up in Moscow, I had to be very careful to avoid hordes of neo-Nazis that were roaming the streets of Moscow in the 90s because these ideologies have always been popular in Eastern Europe. Anti-Semitism has always been popular. Well, I say in Eastern Europe, in Europe uh, in general. Uh, so this is just a, a, a factor. And likewise, if the UK came under attack, I think we'd probably have a few sort of racist, ethno, ethno-nationalist, of which there's a few still left, organizing and trying to, quote-unquote, defend our country from the evil enemy. That's just what happens. And the people who are responsible for unleashing these forces are, in my opinion, the aggressive invaders who are putting a country in a position of war, when, of course, that's the tragedy of war, is the worst element of all societies come together and they are unleashed upon each other and upon the country in which the war is going on. The Secretary of State for Leveling Up, um, Michael Gove, launched the Homes for Ukraine scheme, uh, which will be one of three ways Ukrainians can get into the country. So uh, as well as this scheme, which which means that specific Ukrainians would need to be identified and connected uh, with a Brit, they would be able to c- come into, uh, stay in the home of uh, uh, that Brit, and that Brit would be paid £350 a month to look after them. Uh, as well as that, there's uh, the family connection. If any of them have family connections in the UK, they can come over. And then the third way is sort of other ways, which might include student visas or work visas, which may be existing already. Do you have uh, an opinion on whether uh, the scheme is a good idea, if it goes far enough? If it's, yeah, it doesn't go far enough, what's your take on that? Uh, my take on refugees is usually the same and it's particularly true here because I, I speak to people who are fleeing war all the time. In my opinion, the the best way to help refugees, particularly in a situation like this where the truth is the overwhelming majority of them will want to come back when this is over. Uh, the best way and the most cost-effective way is for people to be looked after in the countries where largely they are being looked after now, which is the neighboring countries like uh, Poland, like Slovakia. And the Polish and Slovakian and other neighboring countries and people of those countries have been incro- incredibly generous. 
And my view is we should be putting money and support and charity. You know, we on Trigonometry raised over £55,000 for various charities that are doing work on the ground there. In my opinion, that's a much better way of helping people because, first of all, it's far more cost effective. £10,000 in Poland goes a lot further than it does in the UK. Uh, but also it means that people are not permanently detached from the place that they want to come back to. You know, it's different in different situations. I imagine, you, I know you, you do a lot of work with Hong Kong and I imagine not many of those people are leaving in order to then come back because they don't see a future for themselves in, in a Hong Kong that's dominated by China in the way that it is. But in this instance, there will be a lot of Ukrainians that do come back even if the country is sort of more pro-Russian or whatever. Do you see what I'm saying? So... Uh, in my opinion, what we should do is what's best for those people and not what makes us feel good about us. And so I'm not one of these people's that, the people that thinks that the British government is atrocious for its handling of refugees or whatever. Refugees are being welcomed in neighboring countries and our efforts and our money and our energy and our charity donations and our other things that we put in place, in my opinion, should be directed primarily at helping people on the ground, making sure that people who are fleeing war and make it to Poland or Slovakia, or whatever, have everything they need there so that we can support them to be able to return to their homes once the, all of this uh, craziness is over. There's some important differences to point out referring to Hong Kong is, mm -hmm. firstly, Ukrainian men under the age of 60 are forbidden from leaving Ukraine and they're encouraged to join the military there. Mm -hmm. So this is women and children who are leaving the country. Mm -hmm. um, women and children are not going to want to stay here alone. They're going to want to go back to their husbands or I suppose their husbands uh, would come out. And the, the second difference is that in Hong Kong, apart from a few thousand um, and maybe even a few hundred at the beginning who fled quite literally because they'd be put in, in prison for 10 years plus. Most Hong Kongers are taking their time. They took months, maybe over a year to consider, oh, do I want to make the move to Britain? It's a longer move. These Ukrainians are fleeing a war zone and there's a good chance, I'm basically agreeing with you, but there's a good chance they're going to want to go back and they might not be able to go back specifically to where they were coming from in Ukraine, but they could go to another region of Ukraine. I don't know, I don't know Ukraine into geopolitics well enough to, to know whether it would make sense for them to go to a different part of Ukraine or if that's a silly suggestion. No, no, it's not a silly suggestion. It really depends on, on what happens let's say, at the let's end say of the war. Let's say that where they came from gets annexed by... Yeah, well, we don't know if that's going to happen. This is one of the things we, we didn't quite touch on, but I don't know that a partition is necessarily how this is going to end. I think Vladimir Putin would be quite happy for Ukraine to remain a whole country potentially, but to have complete control over it through a puppet structure that's in place. So that could be a possibility. We, we don't know. So it remains to be seen. But my point is, two million Ukrainians are not going to want to live in Europe. A lot of them will want to come back to their country. And also the other thing that people forget is, you know, people generally tend to move to countries with a similar culture. They generally tend to move to countries where the language is similar or is easy for them to pick up, where there is already a lot of fellow Ukrainians in this case. And somewhere like Poland is a much better fit. Uh, there's already been quite a lot of Polish uh, or Ukrainian immigration into Poland, quite, uh, quite ironically, to replace a lot of the Polish people who are coming to Western Europe to work. And that it's been that shift in place for a long time. So look, all I'm saying is I think we've got to make sure that what we're doing is aimed at helping Ukrainians as opposed to helping us alleviate the guilt that we feel because we can't do anything about the situation. 
And that's always been my focus about helping the people who need the help, getting them out of the conflict, getting them to a safe location where they're going to have food, they're going to have electricity, etc. Uh, and that's to me where our focus should be. And as I say, that's where the money is better spent as well, in my opinion. Mm. I'm going to ask what might be quite a shallow question, but you and I are both in the entertainment industry or were, and I wonder whether you seeing musicians, actors waving the blue and yellow Ukrainian flag uh, in solidarity as uh, genuinely helpful and encouraging for Ukrainians or perhaps another example of empty virtue signaling. I uh, don't know if you... I think it's both. I think it is empty virtue signaling because it just reveals that there's nothing we can do. But on the other hand, I know that a lot of people in Ukraine feel genuinely grateful for the practical support that Britain in particular has given, but also for the moral support. So uh, I haven't put any flags in my social media handles or whatever, because I just think I've never been a, a fan of doing that. But I know that there will be people in Ukraine who appreciate that and are grateful for that. So I, 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 I try not to have too too strong an opinion on it. I think if if people feel that that somehow signals something to others, great. I always try to think about taking actions that help rather than signaling things that make me feel good. Again, which you, which, which you said, you, you had your fundraiser, you, you raised £55,000 with your co-host uh, uh, Francis. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about if people want to donate more, are we still able to do that through you, uh, for you guys? Uh, and, and where's that money going? Uh, so we picked three charities. One is a Polish charity that's working on the ground in Poland. And a couple are... British and American charities that do very specific targeted medical and uh, mental health support for people who are fleeing war. Uh, the names of all three escape me now, but there are lots of charities doing great work. The Red Cross uh, Ukraine Appeal and many, many others. So people can just d d donate directly to those. If you just Google, you know, reliable charities Ukraine, there's plenty to donate to. And these are charities, like I say, that are helping people on the ground in the countries around. So that's to me, really, what I would encourage people to do, and all of this talk and signaling, whatever. Look, it doesn't it doesn't do any harm, but I'm personally not persuaded that it's it's uh, it's important to do or it's particularly worthwhile. Yeah, well, good on you for taking action and and doing something about that. And uh, it's it's uh, certainly I, I think greatly I'm greatly a great admirer of you for doing it. Um, I wonder whether the I mean I don't know how far into writing your book you are, but uh, an immigrant's love letter to the West does this tie in? Does your book tie into what we're seeing here a little bit, this, this the Western lack of self-confidence or where we are now I, 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 and, and how that's playing out now against uh, Russia? Is, is, is there any link there? Where are you at with the book? The book is finished. And I mean, I have been predicting all of this for, for many years. My, my central point in the book essentially is what happens if you have a clash of civilizations and one of them believes that diversity is our strength and the other one believes that strength is our strength. <laughs> How is that going to end exactly? And what I've been saying for a long time is that we have become a combination of two separate things. The first of which is we have become, particularly Western elites, have become a sort of self-loathing, nihilistic, navel-gazing people who want to hate ourselves for the sins of our forebearers and focus entirely on how privileged we are and how evil we are and how evil our history is and how bad we are and how much we, we must constantly atone for our sins, while at the same time ignoring the fact that 
the rest of the world, particularly China, Russia and other powers, don't see the world like this at all. They see the world as a, as a very simple competition for materials, resources, power, influence, etc. And so as the West withdraws into this in, internal in, introspective navel gazing, we will end up in a position where other big players start to flex their muscles, start to expand, start to challenge the Western, Western dominance. China and Russia have been talking about this for a very long time. Their main complaint about the United States is the United States still acts as the world's only superpower. And what they're saying is, well, we're, we're back. So in that situation, it's very clear to me that as the West pulls back or as the West loses confidence uh, or assertiveness, other players will come. And uh, I actually wrote a foreword or a preface to my book, which talks about this very thing in which I said, you know, if we don't deal with the fact that we are becoming increasingly ignorant to what's happening in the rest of the world and we focus solely on ourselves, we are opening the door to some very, very dark things that are coming. And I say it in terms, in the first few words. And when I showed it to a few friends, they were like, oh, Constantin, this is so well written, but it's way too melodramatic. So initially I took it out of the book and when this all happened, I was like, no, no, you guys were wrong. And I put it back in. So it's back in there now. Uh, I take absolutely no pleasure in, in predicting all of this um, because it's not good. You know, the entire point of, of the book, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, is to wake people up to the reality that, you know, no civilization lasts forever. No civilization lasts forever. No empire lasts forever. No, nothing lasts forever. And how long the Western world remains to the beacon of what I think is the best values we've found, not necessarily purity and it's this great, perfect way of looking at the world at all. We've got many problems in the West. But it is, in my opinion, and this is where, you know, I would annoy Russians and Chinese alike. I do think our values are better. And unless we retain that understanding and act accordingly, the world is going to get very dark very quickly. And uh, I take no pleasure in the fact that this is now happening. Mm. Do you have a date for the uh, publishing of the book? Yeah, the book is out on the July 14th, but it is available on pre-order on Amazon already. So if you just search An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, you'll find it. I look forward to reading it. Constantine Kissin, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Winston. <laughs>